We're looking this morning at John chapter 19, picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we're looking at verse 31 down to verse 42. This is that section of the fourth gospel in which John, as an eyewitness, is focusing on the death of the Lord Jesus. He is bringing in many of the details about the death of Jesus that the synoptic gospels, the other three gospels, do not, because John has a very specific purpose in writing this, and he tells us at the end of the gospel that he has written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John has strategically picked all of these details, and they are full of theological significance, not just historical, uh, factual significance. And so we're looking this morning at the death and the burial of Jesus, and beginning in John chapter 19, verse 31, we're going to read down to verse 37, and I know you're going to find it helpful to be reading along with me this morning. And now the beloved disciple writes, since it was the, preparation, the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the, of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus There, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know about you, but most of the Christians I know have favorite hymns or favorite lines in hymns, and one of the hymns that we sing in our home almost more than any other is that great hymn by William uh, Cooper, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That is a hymn that Cooper wrote because he was battling dis- depression. He was, he was battling spiritual depression. He was struggling with whether or not he had true saving faith. Uh, Cooper had been through incredible hardship. He had lost his mother at age six. He had lost his father. He had seen one of his best friends die at a very young age. And he was writing that hymn as he meditated on those events that happened 
in this passage so that his soul would be comforted with the knowledge that God had received him, had cleansed him, had forgiven him, and had assured him that he belonged to the Lord Jesus. He saw in the pierced side of Jesus and in the blood and the water flowing out a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah that in that day God said a fountain would be open for cleansing. And here as Jesus is fulfilling everything that he had come to do as the eternal son is suffering under the wrath of God, now as he has died and and as he has breathed his last, John is focusing in on those details of what happens to the son of God in that period between his dying and his burial. No, it's interesting, Christians often, and, and it's right that we do so, talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, and we oftentimes fail to understand just how much there is in the events that happen to Jesus in between. Uh, the Apostle Paul includes the burial of Jesus, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians when he says, I, I taught you those things of first significance, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And I want us, this morning as we consider all the things in this section, I want us to just consider those two things, the death of the Lord Jesus and then the burial of the Lord Jesus. Well, notice that John has told us in verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, the son has died. Um, that is going to be exceedingly significant. We'll talk about that in just a moment, that he really and truly underwent the curse of Adam. And yet notice that before John proceeds to tell us more about the details of the Lord Jesus dead, nailed on the tree, notice that in verse 31, he notes, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, For that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, it would be helpful for you to know that the Jews were reflecting back on the Mosaic Law. Back in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, uh, the Lord had said through Moses, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and that um, the body of one who is hung on the tree, a criminal who is executed under the judicial sentence of God, that that body should not remain there, but should be taken down lest the land be polluted. Now, there's a bit of divine irony because here's the Holy One nailed to the cross. Here's the only one who wasn't unclean. If it was us, we would make the land unclean if we were hanging on the tree because we are unclean. But the Lord Jesus is the Holy One, and he is hanging on the tree as an executed criminal because of our sin, and yet the the Jews and their hypocrisy were concerned that they didn't defile the Sabbath um, by leaving his body there as if he would have polluted the land. And I just want to note also that it is of great significance that Jesus dies on the Old Covenant Sabbath. Why was it significant that he died on the Old Covenant Sabbath? Because he is the one that came to fulfill what the Sabbath pointed to. Remember, Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. And then when he is challenged about that, he will say to those who challenge him that he had come 
to provide with the Sabbath fulfilled. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. And remember, at the end of Matthew 11, he says, Come unto me, and I will give you rest for your soul. And so it is fitting that when he dies, he dies on the old covenant Sabbath. He will lay in the tomb, and he will rest from the work of redemption. Isn't that awesome? Jesus will rest on that day that prefigures the heavenly rest that he came into the world to give sinners like us who have no rest from our sin. That's amazing. He is the last Adam. Uh, He is undergoing the curse. I think I've noted to you before that Jesus takes on himself as the last Adam all of the curse that was brought on men because of the first Adam. Remember, thorns would come up, a symbol of the curse, and Jesus would wear the crown of thorns because he's the sin bearer. Remember, God said that because of Adam's sin, he would work the ground, and by the sweat of his brow, he would eat bread, and Jesus sweats great drops of blood when he enters in the work of redemption. And here he takes that final part, He undergoes death. God had said, from dust you came to dust you shall return. The death is the great part of the curse. It is the cessation of life. It is the execution of judgment. And here the eternal son who gave life to Adam, who gives life to all of us right now, underwent the curse that God brought and pronounced on our first parents because of Adam's sin. Well, I think it's important for us to note that in the death of Jesus, John is also doing something that is sort of polemical in nature. It was very common at the time when John is writing this, and remember, John is probably writing this as an older man, and as he is writing this, there is a Jewish mystical heresy that has sprung up. It's called docetism, where where a lot of people were denying that Jesus was actually really and truly human. They, they said he just looked like a man, and they would say he didn't actually die on the cross. It just seemed like he died on the cross. Do, dokeo in Greek means to seem or appear, that he only had the appearance of a man. He wasn't really man, and yet John is going to tell us in all of these details that, that Jesus really and truly died in the flesh. He took flesh to himself for this very purpose, that he might die as we confess this morning For other sinful human beings, the sinless one would have to become man to die in our place. Um, D.A. Carson, reflecting on John's uh, refutation of docetism, says this, John will have none of it. Blood and water flowed from Jesus' side, and in many strands of both Jewish and Hellenistic thought at the time, the human body consists of blood and water. He is proving that Jesus really and truly suffered the pains of death in our place. Um, I want us to focus, though, not just on the historical details about what happens. I want us to consider those spiritual lessons. Notice that when they came to Jesus, they came to break their legs. It was a very common practice that they would, they would break a portion of the legs of those that were crucified so that they might take them down, that they might hasten that death. And remember, we said uh, crucifixion might last 36 to 42 hours. It was very long. It was very excruciating. And so when they came to those two thieves, they hastened that death so that they might not pollute the land. But when they come to Jesus, notice... 
They saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Now, John is going to tell us in just a moment why. Notice verse 36. He says, These things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, that is from Exodus 12. It is about the Passover lamb. In those instructions, God had given Israel about eating the lamb in haste, roasting the lamb, not wasting any of it, sharing it with their neighbors. One of the little details was that not one of its bones would be broken. And John is telling us in this detail, when they come to Jesus and they don't break his legs, he is telling us what he says at the very beginning of this gospel. Remember, the big declaration of John the Baptist when he points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John is doing is coming full circle. And he's saying, This is the Passover Lamb. This is the one who sheds his blood so that you and I do not fall under judgment on judgment day. So that God will pass over us because he sees the sacrificial lamb without blemish, without spot. Not one of his bones were broken. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 will say, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. John is saying that to us this morning. He's saying, when you look at Jesus on the cross, do you see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? He is saying, when you read that not one of his bones was broken, do you acknowledge that is the Lamb that I need for my soul? Do you say, Lord, don't just have his blood shed at the cross, but have it painted all over my sinful soul. So then on judgment day, you will see the blood of the lamb on my sinful soul. That is the point of this. That is what the living God would have you believe today, is that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, it's very interesting here. As I preach these things, I think, who wouldn't be astonished at that? I mean, no... No man could make that up in such intimate details. Um, And yet, what's happening at the foot of the cross? Notice this. There is a picture of the depravity of humanity. Notice, when they came and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Now, This is not an act of kindness. This is an act of hatred and malice. This is what men think about Jesus. This is what we by nature have in our hearts toward God. This soldier is doing this out of hatred to the Lord Jesus. And yet what's fascinating is even as that picture of depravity and what men are like by nature in regard to Christ is happening at the foot of the cross, even when Jesus is dead on the tree, this is amazing. God is guiding the tip of that sword through the ribs of Jesus so that not one bone is broken. If that sword had moved just a little bit up and a bone had been broken, that fulfillment about Jesus being the Passover lamb never would have come true. And he is guiding that sword, the living God is guiding that sword, not that soldier, into the very heart of Jesus so that blood and water flow out of the sun. 
you know, the pure side of Jesus is tremendously significant. At the end of this gospel, remember when Thomas doesn't believe, and Jesus says, put your hand in my side. Tremendously significant. Um, we, are, we are to see in the pure side of Jesus everything for our salvation. The demonstration of his death, the picture of our own depravity and hostility toward God by nature, and yet, and this is amazing, we see in this again that he is the last Adam. You know, Augustine, the early church theologian, he said this. Listen to this carefully. He said, when Jesus slept on the cross, he bore a sign. He fulfilled what had been signified in Adam. When Adam was asleep, a rib was drawn from him and Eve was created. Don't miss this. When Adam was created, God put him to sleep and took from his side a rib and created Eve. And Augustine says, so when the Lord slept on the cross, his side was pierced with a spear. This is where the church was born. The church is the Lord's bride and was created from his side, even as Eve was created from the side of Adam. I think that that is true. You, if you're a believer, become part of the bride of Jesus because God has his side pierced and blood and water pouring out for our sins. Um, I've already noted that this was a fulfillment of Zechariah. Zechariah said in chapter 13, verse 1, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. This is the fountain. This is the fountain that William Cooper saw when he wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. Is there something greater that your soul can latch onto than that? No. If I told you how to have a better marriage for the rest of your life, it pales in comparison to knowing that there is a fountain open that you can plunge your filthy, guilty souls under, and my filthy, guilty soul, and it is for cleansing. Isn't that amazing? You know, Augustus Toplady, the other great hymn writer, captured this so well when he said, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, cleanse me of its guilt and power. Um, I think that's symbolized here. Why water and blood? Because the blood is a symbol that, that Christ by his death cleanses us of the guilt of our sin. The water flowing from him is a type, isn't it? A picture, a symbol of the cleansing of the Holy Spirit, cleansing our sinful souls. Jesus had said throughout this gospel, there is this water theme. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. There, there is Jesus, remember, turning the water into wine. And then there is the woman at the well and Jesus saying to her, whoever comes to me will never thirst because I'll give him water. And then in the tabernacle, in the Feast of the Tabernacle in John 7, remember Jesus stands up on the last day when water is being poured around the basin of the sacrifice by the priest. And, and he says, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And as the scripture says... And I think he's speaking of himself, as the scripture says, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And John says he was speaking about the Holy Spirit. 
And now here at the end of this gospel, when blood and water are flowing out of Jesus' side, I think we're meant to draw together that the one who said, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, I will give him never-failing wells that he is symbolizing that the Spirit is going to flow from him, that he is going to satisfy the souls of his people when they see who he is and what he has come to give them freely. He says, whoever's thirsty, come to me and drink. Um, There is one more thing I think intended in the water and the blood. Um, Remember when Israel was in the wilderness and they were complaining against God, and I'm actually preaching on this tonight out of Exodus 17, and God so graciously provides for them everything. He turns the bitter water sweet. He gives them the manna from heaven, all types of Christ, and then he gives them, remember, water from the rock. And what does Moses have to do? The Lord says, I am going, and I am going to stand on the rock. And I want you to take the rod of justice with which I afflicted Egypt with my just wrath and plagues, and I want you to strike the rock. And what the Lord is saying is, I want you to strike me. And when I am struck with the rod of justice for the sin of my people who are complaining and grumbling, when I am struck with the rod of of my justice, water is going to flow out. And what happens to Jesus when he is struck with the rod of God's justice? on the cross. Paul says that rock was Christ. Listen to this. Edmund Clowney says this, when Moses struck the rock, a stream of life-giving water poured out into the desert. When Jesus was crucified, John tells us that blood and water poured from his side. He is reminding us of the water as well as the blood. John recalls the cry of Jesus at the feast, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That water that Christ gives is the water of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of that is for you, if you're a believer. Um, We are are thirsting after so many things that can never satisfy our souls. Every day, we are trying to satisfy ourselves. Every day. Jeremiah the prophet, the Lord says, "'My people have committed two great evils.'" They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have hewn out for themselves cisterns, jars, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so every day when we're not coming to Christ and drinking of the living water, and we're trying to satisfy ourselves with other things, we're taking a clay pot with sand in it, and we're saying, satisfy me. And it can't satisfy our souls ever. And we know it, and we feel it, and we keep doing it. And we keep drinking from things that can't satisfy us. And Jesus, when we look at the cross, this is where he says, come and drink. Come and be washed. Come and be satisfied. I am going to give you the Holy Spirit. And he is going to well up into everlasting life within you. You know, that is the purpose of the death of the Lord Jesus here. Very interesting as we briefly consider the burial, it's out of the darkness of that scene that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come. 
They come from the shadows of the darkness. And it's, it's as they see these things that true saving faith is awakened within them. Um, if you want to be a man or a woman who is mighty in, in faith, if you want to really live your life um, and walk by faith in Christ, this is where it's born. We're going to have the supper in a minute, and we're going to be reminded of all of this again. This is why Jesus gave us bread and wine. This is it. This is where faith is created in the gospel. This is what sustains us as we sojourn through the darkness of this world and as we walk out of the darkness of our own hearts and into the light. It's as, it's as Joseph of Arimathea. We know so little about him except that he was rich. We don't even know where Arimathea was. We know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a religious leader. We know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, also a religious leader. We know that they, they both were secret disciples. Notice verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Um, when we think about those times when we could have and should have borne witness to Christ and we didn't, we are just like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We are secret disciples, and that is not where we want to be. You see what's happening at the foot of the cross is the secret disciple, the covert, hidden, cowardly disciple is made a very bold and forthright disciple. This, as I said, is where faith is born. I don't know about you, but I want to be a lot bolder for the Lord Jesus because our lives are so short, and that is the only thing that matters, is knowing him, living for him, and telling others about him. That's why you're a Christian. That's it. It's not to be in a good church with lots of programs that make you feel good, and your kids have lots of friends. That's not what being a Christian is. It's this. It's knowing the Lord Jesus. It's trusting him. It's living for him, and it's telling others about him. And here, at the foot of the cross, faith is born. Notice this. Nicodemus also, notice how John puts that. He names him Nicodemus also. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus back in chapter 3 by, by cover of night. He was afraid that, that his religious buddies might find out that he really thinks Jesus is greater than they make him out to be. And, and then we see Nicodemus again in chapter 12 when he sort of defends Jesus. He says to his fellow uh, Pharisees, does our law condemn a man before they hear him? But, but he's not yet a disciple. He's not yet shown himself to be a true disciple of Christ. But here, now, Nicodemus also, he comes, and he and Joseph take the body of Jesus. And there's a fulfillment here, by the way. Um, if they had not come to take Jesus' body, he would have been thrown in a trash heap and burned like all those other wicked criminals. But Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, about the suffering Savior, says they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich in his death, because he had done nothing wrong, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Here, 
God is honoring the Son of God by putting him in a new tomb belonging to a rich man. It's a dignified death for the Lord Jesus, as it were, a dignified burial for him. And it's interesting, they anoint him. Notice those details. Nicodemus, they came with 75 pounds of uh, myrrh and aloes, and they came to anoint the body of Jesus. Why is that significant? Why? Why does John even mention all these little details? Because in Psalm 16, the psalmist had said, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. His body would not decay. He would be laid in that tomb. He would be there until the first day of the week, and he would rise glorious, incorruptible, not having seen decay. All of this is God fulfilling what the Old Testament had said. And again, if I can say this this morning, and, and maybe if, if you're sitting here and you're like, I, I don't get how this is relevant to my life, it is everything. This is why we believe in Jesus. Remember, John says, these things are written that you may believe in the Son of God. Why do we believe that Jesus is the Redeemer and the long-promised Messiah? Because the Old Testament prophesied all of these things about him, all of them. Whether it was Exodus 12, whether it was Deuteronomy 21, whether it was Zechariah 12 and 13, whether it was Isaiah 53, or whether it was Psalm 16, all of these things, John says four times, in order to fulfill the scriptures. This was to fulfill what was written. Um, that's why we believe. We believe that God foretold all of these things, that Christ accomplished all these things. And here's the good news. Jesus, as the last Adam, who undid everything that Adam did and did everything Adam failed to do, presents himself to you this morning, and he says, come to me and drink. And the right response to all of this is to say, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from your riven side, which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its guilt and power. Um, whether you are a believer this morning or you are not a believer, that is what God would have you do in response to this. He would have you cry out from your heart, Lord, wash me or I die. Bring me to that fountain for cleansing. And you know what? You don't just come once. This is not beginning of the Christian life stuff. If, if you're bored and you think this is beginning of the Christian life stuff, you are horribly mistaken. This is everyday stuff. My filthy soul needs the cleansing blood of Jesus every day, and so does yours. And that's why this is the center. This, that's why I said last week, this is the center of gravity. You know, in a minute, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I, I, I always tell you this. I, I say, you know, this table is not for people who are good enough or clean enough or think that they've done well enough this week. This table is for sinners who need to be cleansed in their souls, who need to know that Christ has already justified them, and who need to know that Christ is sanctifying them, the water and the blood. And so as we prepare this morning, I would encourage you to be 
examining your own hearts and saying, what is my response to the things I've heard this morning? Am I crying out to the Lord, Lord, show me that fountain. Make me to see and feel my need for that cleansing. And here's the good news. He keeps cleansing. He keeps forgiving. He keeps washing every single person who comes to him in faith for that. And that fountain never dries up. It never runs out. It never stops working. It keeps working. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are weighty truths, and there are many truths in this passage, and we thank you and praise you that you have given them to us by your Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were wounded for our transgressions, that you were pierced for our iniquities. We thank you that there is a fountain open for us in the blood that you shed on the cross and in the water and the blood that flowed from your side. Father in heaven, would you make us to see these things with the eyes of faith? Would you give us grace this morning to cry out to you for the water and the blood, for the cleansing of guilt, the washing of guilt and the cleansing from sin? We pray, our God, that you would make us to feel our need for these things as we come to the table. Would you prepare us this morning to feed on the Lord Jesus and to drink his blood by faith? We pray these things in his name. Amen.